I'm Andrea Catherwood. Welcome to the Rathbones Look Forward series, where I'm speaking to some of the great thinkers, journalists and writers of our time, focusing on the future of our changing world. Tonight, we're talking about the future of society. My guest is internationally acclaimed social entrepreneur and writer, Dr. Hilary Cotton. Hilary's work in Britain and around the world has focused on solutions to some of the great social challenges of our time, which are outlined in her latest book, Radical Help. Challenges such as ageing, loneliness, chronic disease, good work and inequality. Hilary Cotton, it's a pleasure to have you here. Welcome. It's fantastic to be here. Hello. In your book, Radical Help, you argue that the welfare state requires a really dramatic reform to fit into the 21st century. The welfare state is the envy of the world in lots of people's eyes. And it's been emulated globally. So where do you think it's gone wrong? Well, I'm really pleased that you say that the welfare state was emulated globally, because I think the important starting point is how amazing our welfare state was. When it was designed after the Second World War, nobody thought that systems of the 19th century could solve the social challenges of the 20th century. So I think it's exactly the same now, that 20th century industrial welfare systems can't address the 21st century challenges of today. Things have gone wrong in three ways, really. I mean, one is that we've got all kinds of new problems like ageing, climate change, chronic conditions that our services weren't set up to address. The second is that society's changed. I mean, the welfare state was built around the idea of the white male worker that had a job for life and the housewife at home that would take care of the children, elderly relatives, the neighbours if nobody else was around, and we don't want to do that anymore. And then the third thing that I think is really important is that Beveridge, when he designed the welfare state, thought he had solved the problem of poverty. In fact, he said to Roundtree, who collected poverty statistics, and the Roundtree Foundation still do, that there wouldn't be any more poverty. Um, But today we have, you know, over a million children in a new category, just invented of destitution. And so poverty is deepening, it's becoming more complicated. It's particularly about relationships and who we know will determine what happens to us. And so I just think the 20th century systems we've got can't see or address those problems. I'm going to bring up something straight away before we move on to talk about this, because... To me, the welfare state, the NHS, it's a sort of holy cow. It cannot be touched. And anybody who tries to, and politicians have fallen down on this time and time again, they're accused of of eroding it, of trying to get rid of it, of trying to get rid of a cornerstone, a pillar of what makes Britain, uh, you know, a, a wonderful country and an exemplar for the rest of the world. So how do you go about doing that and not just being accused of eroding the whole thing? Well, I think the important thing is that when the welfare state was invented, it was a vision. It was what does it take to have a good life for everybody in the 20th century? So I think what we need to do is go back to that vision and reinvent it and ask that question again. And I work work with people in communities across the country. So Radical Help tells these stories of somebody like Stan, for instance, who lives very close to where we're sitting now in central London. He is one of the over two million people who doesn't see somebody in a week. He's alone. And when I meet him, he doesn't want a service. He wants kind of real connection to other people. And the welfare state hasn't got any answers. I tell stories of mothers like Ella in the book, who has 73 different professionals in her life, all commanding, regulating, sanctioning. But her life isn't changing. And so she just wants everybody in the welfare state to walk away. Perhaps lots of our listeners have got troubled teenagers that they can't find help for, an elderly parent they want to find good care for. So I think 
the reality is that people who are trying to use these services do know they're not working and we need to think again. Now, of course, many people would just say it's a question of money. The NHS would work and it would work well if it had enough money and we've seen lots of cuts. We've had austerity for a long period of time and that's what's wrong. Is it enough to say, look, if we just had a bigger budget, we could fix all these problems that you outlined? Well, Radical Help does argue for more investment in social solutions. We need more money. But what we don't need is more money in those old institutions. 70% of the expenditure in our hospitals today goes on people that can't be cured. They're there with chronic conditions like diabetes, and they're there because there's no other support for them. So what we need to do is think about how we can, and you know, the book has these examples, how can we design new services? that we can invest in that support people with what is the kind of disease story of today, which is depression, chronic conditions, diabetes, new forms of cancer. And these can't be cured by a 1950s industrial system that passes you a pill. They're about connecting to people, lifestyle, motivation. This is a completely different system we need. It's a bit like turning around an oil tanker, though. It seems like it's... And perhaps that is one of the reasons that politicians struggle to do it, because... Within a four-year cycle, it would be a very difficult thing to take on. One might say that the whole reason the welfare state was able to be created was because you had this point at the end of the Second World War where there was a chance to do something dramatically different. What's your vision as to how you would go about doing this within our current political system? Well, I think one of the critical things is something you alluded to earlier, which is that we're frightened of reform or change because we have actually had decades of reform. And what that's really meant is privatisation of old services and cutting the services. So not enough of us have got examples in our life of what something new and modern might look like and so one of the things I've been doing is creating these experiments around the country so that thousands of people can touch feel create and use different forms of health service different forms of employment support and so on and I think that's the first thing it's not going to happen by some politician commanding it's going to happen by growing at community level these different sorts of solutions and then beginning to kind of think about how they connect to each other in a new framework. And are you thinking of private solutions as well as as the state sector ones? How do they marry together? I'm really keen not to fall into this public-private debate because I think that's where we've we've got stuck. And so there was this idea of if only we privatise these 1950s solutions, somehow our world will change. And what matters really is the framework. It doesn't matter whether it's public or private to some extent. What matters is what actually we're delivering. You know, if it's the private sector trying to deliver the old-fashioned health services, that's not going to kind of take us anywhere. But if we think about how we can connect community, business and the state together developing these new solutions, then we're really going to kind of have something different. Tell me a little bit, kind of an overview, about how you go about doing that. What are some of the solutions that you've found along the way that actually work? Because I think we can all identify the problems quite easily. Where everyone gets stuck is working out how on earth you do change this system to do the things that you're talking about. Look after our elderly, look after people with long-term chronic illnesses and look after young people who are also maybe experiencing real difficulties growing up. Well, we've been talking about health, so perhaps we could start there. I mean, I can think of somebody I've worked with called Anne, for instance, who um, has terrible difficulties. She has nine specialist doctors. Her life is basically about seeing these specialist doctors. She can't reach up to wash her hair. She can't get to the bus stop. Um, And when I call all those doctors together, they tell me something that she already knows, which is that basically the medication doesn't work. So what we do is we sit with Anne and we think about what in her life would be something where she would find confidence to make change. And in 
fact, what she says is she'd just like to do her embroidery again in the company of other people, and we start that. And then it sounds unorthodox, but over time, her health changes. I mean, that's just the beginning of a story. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, I suppose, in, the, in that story is what we need to do, which is that we need to start with people in their lives, not saying, how can I fix this service? Can you help me fix this service? But saying... How could you change your life? What do you want in your life? And then how could I support you to make that change? You write about your new vision in your book. Tell me a little bit about the vision overall. So the vision, I mean, I think the most important thing is to reinterpret the starting point of the welfare state, which is what is a good life? And I think what would flourishing be for everybody in this country? And I think it would be around having the capability to grow and develop. It would be around having good work, having the opportunity to learn, by which I don't just mean exam grades, but really be able to learn. It would be about being healthy. It would be about having a sense of being connected to community and having good relationships. In essence, the vision is that we can turn things on their head instead of constantly trying to manage needs and stick people together, slap on the band-aid after something's happened. What we can say in every stage of life is, where are you now? How can I support you to grow those capabilities so that you can flourish in your life? So it would be really turning things on its head and starting to grow capabilities rather than manage need. It sounds like you're advocating a lot more personal responsibility. I wonder if it's fair to say that that maybe works very well for people who are capable already and might be difficult for people who are more vulnerable and indeed maybe in more need of care. I'm not really advocating personal responsibility in that sense. I mean, it's definitely not the big society. I think that one of the challenges we have is how we define the problem. So at the moment, what we think is unemployment is your problem. You are that feckless, in the word of government, individual that doesn't have a job. You're unwell. Oh, you're that kind of crazy person that isn't eating properly. And actually, if we really understood these problems and how they develop, which is that they're collective, that our society is changing, that we can talk a lot about technology, how that's changing the way we live, the way we work, that these are collective problems that need collective solutions. So I'm actually designing new collective solutions. I'm not designing individual solutions. But what I am saying is that in that collective solution each person needs some form of support you know you can't just kind of do this on your own but a different kind of support I need to stand beside you and help you with what you want rather than kind of do to you or command you to change which is the sort of 1950s model. Mm. Have you got any examples of some of the collective solutions to some of the big problems that we've been talking about like for example, obesity or, or problems with adolescence. Just t- tell well, me radical a- help goes cradle to grave yep. and shows how they could work. But if I take the example of work, mm. we have got challenges of how to find work and most importantly, how to progress into good work because we have work in this country, but what we don't have is good work and it's very hard to kind of make that progression. And if you're out of work or if you're looking for good work, you actually go to a service that was designed in the 1930s and looks exactly the same. You know, you get benefits and you get advice, except now the advice is on a computer. And what we know is that today in the modern economy, eight out of 10 jobs aren't advertised. And the most important way to find work is to have a network of relationships that are not like you. So knowing that, we asked everybody in a job centre who wanted to work in a different way to come through this door we put up. And we began to build communities, connecting people. So we asked people to meet in public spaces and we brought people who are in work, in very good work, out of work, in between work. And I mean, I can talk about how these are developed, but little by little we develop some simple methods that work in group settings to begin to find out what people want to do. So the traditional approach says, how long have you been out of work? What are your qualifications? And we say, what do you dream of? 
Who is the person you need to know to take the first step along that dream? And so running this programme... Um, and having an evaluation, it cost a fifth of any traditional approach. 87% of people progressed in work and 100% grew their capability. So it's a really concrete example about how taking a collective approach really begins to kind of move people and allows them to kind of define their path in a very different way than that individual job advisor, benefit, job application model. To do that, you need to find those people who are in very good jobs or indeed big companies to actually get involved. How easy was it to do that? Well, there are challenges. You know, if we're working in a sort of slightly grotty part of a city, Mm. people might not want to go there late on a Thursday night and might feel it's kind of quite frightening. So we have to kind of think about that. And one of the one of the challenges was what what would also be good for people? Why would might you want to come? Mm. So you might be somebody um, in a very good job that wants a kind of progression and you need to show you can manage people that you can. So we could develop small tools that people could use in their jobs so that everybody is learning something and getting something out of it. But I think the most important thing is actually we want to help and we find this again and again is that if we make it simple and we don't ask too much of people you don't have to commit to do six hours a week then actually what happens is that people want to feel part of something and they want to feel that they're helping others progress. You talk in your book about how people feel supported by strong human relationships and that's when change happens. Is that a good example of this? Yes, I think so. I mean, I think everybody is getting something out of that because Mm. people want to to feel they're supporting others. But also only in that human connection do you build the social skills to to find work, to begin to be able to talk about what your experience is, to feel comfortable in a work situation and also to build that relationship that that will, will nurture you to move up in your workplace you know you might already be in work but you want to progress and you know we've we've talked a little bit about going back to the 1950s and the 1930s actually some of the community that was there then isn't here now so actually it might make it more difficult for people to uh, to have those kind of human relationships that they would have had in the past well I'm not so nostalgic about that I'm a woman and I know that you know I have a kind of a family and I have work that I love Mm. and I know that in that time of the welfare state I wouldn't have had that because I would have been taking care of everybody else and now of course what we all want is to work and to take care we don't just want to pass that to somebody else so I think there were some fundamental errors and some nostalgia around that community and what I find with the work you know we grow it in one place and then we take it to other places in the country is that people look at the business model and local leaders always say oh definitely I know this will save money but this isn't going to work here because people here won't join in and so far I haven't found anywhere that people won't join in I think it's a kind of myth that we so there's an assumption heads. that people won't join in I mean I, I said the same thing didn't yes, I you know yes. there's an assumption that's going to be really hard to get successful people or successful businesses to get involved and actually obviously you can immediately see the huge benefit for someone who is unemployed and does want to make those connections it's harder to see the benefit for those people who are already on the ladder and they're not maybe as motivated to get involved but you haven't found that as a problem no I haven't found it's a problem I think it's very different if what happens if we have cuts to existing services and the government says would you mind putting your own library book back on the library shelf Mm because we can't afford to do it you're like well no not really but if what you do is collectively you design something that's helping everybody so another really good example would be the um, elderly service circle we designed which is a membership service for everybody over the age of 50 which provides online and on phone support you can call an 0800 number and social connection and we said to people would you like to help somebody in your street and they said yes but I would be much too embarrassed I know that you know Shirley down the road could do with a spot of help but I would feel condescending if I knocked on her door or I'm really busy I can't commit to that but I don't mind picking up the shopping for you know 
Bob on the way home and dropping it off. So it's again, technology plays a role. We can connect little bits of time together in, in immediate ways that make this very light and easy to do and then people want to join in. I just want to read a quote from it's actually at the very beginning of your book. You have a quote from someone called Tara who's a, a Swindon mother as, as she's described in the book and she says, whoever reads the book, tell them not to feel sorry for me. That's not what this is about. I have to start changing things for the better and for the kids too. Things need to change so that this doesn't happen to other people too. Tell me a little bit about that and why you used the quote there at the beginning of the book. Well, I I think that quote speaks to me for two reasons. I mean, one is that I think it's really important that we don't somehow kind of other the need of welfare, that this is something that is needed for other people that are not us. Because actually, you know, many of us have teenagers that need support. All of us have parents that we want to be taken care of in a different way. And most of us at some point in our life are going to fall in a hole and need some support. And we don't want to be looked down on. So I think those people who are currently, I mean, capitalism is an unequal system. So those people on the sharp end of that also don't want to feel that I'm going to receive support because you feel sorry for me. Everybody needs to kind of give. So I think that's important. But the other thing that I think is really important is that we need a welfare state that's like a trampoline that kind of helps us to kind of bounce. And what we have is one that's like a kind of net that actually traps you. It's not a kind of good safety net. And so what we see are services that kind of manage your problems. And once you enter, you never really leave. And the example of these mothers was we asked the local authority, well, you've told us about families that need help. Can you introduce us to a family that has actually successfully exited your system? And they said no. You know that we help in very good ways these families but once they're in the system they never get out and they want to get out and we want to support them to get out so we need a really different way of thinking about this. Tell me a little bit about the older and younger generations in the future of society because we talk a lot about inequality at the moment and particularly inequality, intergenerational inequality in lots of different areas, housing being just one of them. Can you give us some examples of how you find practical solutions there and indeed what benefits it gives to both the older people and the younger people? Well, I think starting with younger people, it's a really good, you know, teenagers. It was a concept that didn't exist when Mm. the welfare state was designed. You left school probably 15, 16, 14 at the beginning Mm. and you went straight into work. And now we have these in-between years that we know are developmentally really important. We also understand more about how brains develop. We know that if something went wrong in your early years, you know, whilst the teenage brain is changing we can put things right but also relationships are what matter relationships and who you know determine what happens to you in your life what kind of work you'll find your health and so on and what I've seen in the work I do rooted in communities is that many people do not have you know we've become geographically very unequal so lots of people don't have the connections so with young people I said given that we know that young people need this to, to sort of learn well to develop opportunities why don't we think about the entire sort of city or community as the youth centre instead of something locked in walls where just one generation is and connect people in different ways to their community so they can do things that are interesting which we did with great effect I mean there's a longer story about why that was considered too risky actually to to connect people to each other but the connections did really help the young people who are part of it I was very interested in hearing what you said about young people not wanting to be kind of ghettoized into youth related services it really struck a chord with me actually because you know we do talk about wanting to put more funding into support for young people But what you actually forget is that young people don't necessarily want to just be branded as having to stay in that particular silo, if you like, and not get out of it. Yes, because they're interested in different things. But Mm. one of the one of the really shocking things is that we've done that so much that some of the young people in the beginning of the work were like, oh, really? Do something with an older person? That's just weird. Why would I do that? That perhaps more than actually participating is a challenge that we need to overcome, which is how do we connect through generations? And again, through design 
designing things the youth service we designed was about finding what people are both interested in and doing things together. So not trying to connect people just because it's a good thing, but, mm-hmm. you know, we're both passionate about cooking. Let's go and do some cooking mm-hmm. together. And it actually obviously was helpful to older people as well. I mean, it actually it had a positive benefit for the older people involved, did it? I think people do want to be connected in their communities. I mm-hmm. think there's a hunger to be mm-hmm. connected. We all like social connection. But I think there's also a growing awareness that things aren't right in our country, that we are very divided. And actually, most people people are quite bothered about that and given a chance to join in um, that's important. You've talked about the need to kind of design new systems that make collaboration between all sorts of people much easier. Tell me just about how easy it is to set up those systems because the, the ones that you've set up seem to have all been very successful and as you say cheaper than the systems that are currently set up I I suppose I've got the question why aren't they being rolled out then yes well not all are successful I mean I think what's important in radical help is I talk about what's gone wrong as well as what's gone right because I think that's quite important I think what's really important is that if we want to make change in systems we can't design them in old ways I mean the traditional way is you know somebody in government has an idea it becomes a report it gets a budget it becomes a service it hits the ground it doesn't work when it kind of hits a complex reality and a lot of money has been wasted. The way I work is inverting that. So I'm sitting in communities, getting to know people and starting in a very small way. So, you know, on estates in South London where I live to begin with, with the ageing service, just asking people what they do, what doesn't work, what they actually need in their lives. To begin with, people usually complain about services and then, you know, having lunch with people, Sunday lunch, playing bingo. What comes out is what people really want, which in this case was immediate help for small practical tasks, a network. Perhaps I've lost friends because I've spent ages caring for somebody and lost contact, lost connection. I now want to make friends like I've done at every stage in my life with people I really like, but I I don't want to be befriended. I don't want somebody condescendingly coming to have tea with me. So how can I make those relationships again? And then it's kind of beginning to grow that. So what we did in that instance was we rented some phone lines, we rented some power tools and some things to do practical stuff, and we began just to connect people together. So really building in real time and then as it grows thinking about what's the system that will enable this to grow and again technology platforms are really important because they enable this work to grow in a very kind of cheap way. I want to talk a little bit about technology because it almost underpins all of this doesn't it I mean if we're talking about the fact that the 1950s system that was set up doesn't really emulate life today one of the major things that we have of course is a technological revolution I'm sure there's good points and bad points and we can talk a little bit about that. But how much of what we do in a redesigning of society is actually based on the the technological ability we've got today? Well, I think technology is neutral. It depends how we use it Mm. and it offers immense possibility. At the moment, what we try to do is we use that technology to try and make old systems more efficient. So we tag prisoners because we can monitor them at lower cost. We put, you know, 1950s curriculum online and so on. But actually, there's a real possibility to use technology to connect in new ways. So if we think about the ageing service I've talked about or the employment service, we use and hack really simple sort of customer relationship management software, you know, stuff that every business uses so that we can really know and connect people in real time. And it means that with our... Um, employment service for example four people can you know manage and run a community of a thousand the same with the aging service by using this to connect other people in real time so if you need a lift to the hospital 
we can see immediately who lives near you, who's got time and can take you to the hospital. If you want to kind of meet in a group, we can see who's meeting and we can connect you to that group. I mean, these things were impossible in the 1950s. And I think what's also really important is that it means that the things we design aren't dependent on one amazing charismatic individual to run them because there's this technological support. Now, it's all about getting off the technology and getting face-to-face to make change happen. But nonetheless, this completely changes the economic dynamics and the scaling possibilities of the work. I suppose many people would argue that while all of those things are great add-ons to the current welfare state, is it worth throwing the baby out with the bathwater? I mean, are you still imagining that we would have a free at the point of use healthcare system as we do now with a lot of these technological add-ons? Are you thinking of something much more dramatic? No, I think it will be free at the point of delivery. And I think that what we need is investment in... You can't shift the systems unless you make the investment. So Mm -hmm. in places where the work that I started has really grown, you know, they put considerable resource into shifting the system. They now run services that cost a lot less, but they had to kind of, you know, you have to sort of re-gear the systems. Cost comes in two different ways. One is that the services cost less because of the way we're working and we're using technology to change the business case, but they also cost less because people aren't revolving in the system. So the ageing service we designed means that people don't go back in to use hospital beds, where we've done evaluations, 25% less people visit their GP because they basically don't need an ear to talk to. So actually what we're doing is we're taking pressure out of the system and that means that that money that is in there for care at the moment can be used for the sort of high end that we really need and it's exactly the same with our health systems which is that if we think about Anne with her nine specialist doctors none of whom are making a difference or we think about seven in ten hospital beds with people that have incurable diseases it's just not sensible to be spending more money trying to manage that. Let's just try and unpick that that's for example the people in hospital with incurable diseases what is the solution because obviously if somebody is very ill they may well not be able to be cared for at home and they might have to be in hospital even though there isn't a cure for them there. You know that's actually very small percentage of people and even if you do need that full-time care I mean hospitals are dangerous places apart from anything else you know from all sorts of you know biological as well as managerial reasons so there is a very small percentage of people that need good care that's expensive and so one of the arguments is we need to kind of take out place where we're using funding you know and this is how our aging service works what happens is if you don't have good community solutions when the social worker or the medical person comes to visit you what they do is they know you need support so they push you into acute services so actually what happens is we need to kind of recreate in a different way those community support systems so less people are in the acute services and those that are then have really good human caring relationships and how do you actually re-engineer those community support services when as you say there aren't as as there were in the past all this kind of free care from women who weren't working free care to society not to the women themselves but who weren't working in paid jobs and therefore were available to do all of those things and is it possible for us to kind of re-engineer society so that those older people are actually looked after in a community that doesn't mean that they're as much of a burden to the NHS but they're also not being looked after maybe by members of their own family well I think one practical example I mean about 10 years ago I started doing family work in in Wigan with families like the mother Tara that you you talked Mm -hmm. about. Wigan saw dramatic changes with their families from this work through that experiment but through other things they'd already been piloting and trialling themselves they developed something called the Wigan deal and what's happened in Wigan is that they have really begun to think about what does it mean to have services that I would call relational that really are about human connection Mm -hmm. 
what needs to be provided by the state and what really is better done in the community and then what how shall we transfer resources to the community so that they actually have the possibility to do that they're not continually applying for funding or looking for support so they did something they had a huge open conversation and they designed something called the Wigan deal whereby they said these are the things we're going to do we're going to you know take out this we're going to give you back your libraries your swimming pools and so on we're going to kind of take this out of the budget and we're going to put it in the hands of the community and we're going to ask you how you would like to support older people in exactly the way you're you're asking about it's really exciting and radical what's happening in Wigan it's costing a lot less and in the last survey where they asked the population what they think of their their services actually the chief executive sent it back to Maury to ask them to do it again because it was so positive she actually thought something had gone wrong but the same kind of statistics came out You've spent a lot of time talking to people on the ground who are actually using these services and are either finding them finding them good or you're finding out what they could do better. What about the people that are providing them? Because very often the people who are kind of at the coalface in the NHS and, and elsewhere in our welfare state have got some very good ideas about how they could do things better. They've got good ideas, yes. I think if there was a, if there was a motto for radical help, it would be mm. take care of everyone. Because... In the same way that I live alongside families and communities, I spend a lot of time working alongside frontline workers. And I think the most interesting thing is that these are amazing, dedicated professional people that can't do good work in bad systems. Mm -hmm. So they have a lot of ideas about how things should be changed, but also they're under immense pressures. And in fact, I know our public service professionals are voting with their feet. You know, one in five social work positions isn't full, one in three midwives aren't working, thousands of care positions are vacant. And this is because our systems are impossible to work in. So when we talk about the welfare state not working, I think it's from the perspective of all of us who need support, but also from the perspective of people who are working in in the systems. So a really important part of the work is to collaboratively design with professionals who have got great ideas, but also think about what do systems like that take care of the carers so they're actually able to support us in the way that they want to do. Tell me about how we move this forward, because it's obviously... uh very important that although you are doing these things organically from the ground up, I know you've had some government funding, this does have to be a government initiative to make it work. Is there any traction? Do people who are reading your book, who are who are in government, turn around and say, "Yeah, I think we can. I think we can make this work." So the third part of radical help really is kind of dedicated to that question, mm. which is how do we move from where we are now to where we need to be. The government has a really important role to play. They need to design the framework to make things move. And my analogy is historical that Beveridge, who designed the welfare state, you know, in the 1930s, we had had a war, you know, come out of a massive recession. And those leaders, they dared to dream. And they said, what we're going to do is we're going to create a new framework. And, you know, if you want to be funded, you have to get into it. And as we know, teachers were really excited about it. Actually, doctors hated the idea of the NHS and kind of came in kicking and screaming because they wanted to be paid. And that's what needs to happen now is that the government needs to redesign the framework. And I think at that level, no, there is not a conversation in this country at the moment. I mean, partly it's Brexit that people are preoccupied with other things. Um, it's also just that things have got very entrenched, I think, in this is political, but just sort of arguments on the left of let's just have more money, on the right of, you know, let's just kind of cut the welfare state. That is one of the reasons that even having this conversation is very difficult, because as soon as you start talking about re-engineering the welfare state, you immediately, I'm sure this must have happened to you, you immediately must come up against people who say, well, if you want to do that, it's because you want to erode it. Well, and people are suspicious of the book in the Mm. beginning. At the policy level, what's really interesting is the book is a book for the general public and, um, you know, literature festivals engaging with the public all over the country. The book makes sense to the public because we who are, you know, 
got children in schools, as I said, have parents that need looking after. We completely understand these arguments, as in fact do professionals in the system. But there's a sort of disconnect between those who are making the policy. I mean, I tell a story in the book that when we started our family work, one of my colleagues went to number 10 and had a conversation with policy advisors that were there then this is some time ago and at the end of the conversation the policy advisor said oh you know thank you thank you so much and he said well why are you thanking me I I, we haven't done any work yet and they said no no but none of us have families so it's just so interesting to think of this you know from your perspective and I think in that anecdote there lies the problem yeah absolutely it does seem to me very often when we're discussing this that sometimes the very people that are making these policies aren't actually living in that in in that situation it's not it's not a lived experience for many of the people who are making policies today yes and that that is a real frustration isn't it and I think perhaps the hardest thing about making change isn't asking the government to redesign the frameworks which Mm -hmm. needs to happen but it's our own belief because again going back to beverage we can say oh there was a war but really to imagine that all those people in those welfare queues were going to be people who owned their homes who had a car outside a barbecue I mean that was just an incredible vision and we need to rethink you know in the 21st century in the context of a fragile planet what does that huge vision look like and then how are we going to kind of get by Behind it. When we look at technology, things like AI may also radically change this. So are we thinking that we're going to have to have, if your redesign system were able to come in, it will need to be more flexible going forward because our technological changes are happening at pace and we really don't know what the future is going to hold. No, and I mean, AI isn't a subject that I'm an expert in, but looking, you know, as I do at welfare systems around the world, we've seen already some really horrendous stories of what happens, for instance, in in some cities in the US when they've used AI to think about what children are allowed to remain with their parents. And, you know, the algorithms have gone horribly wrong because, you know, data in, data out, and if the wrong perspectives go in, then the wrong things come out. But I do think, I mean, if we go back to the employment service that we designed, as I said, we think about categorising in a completely different way, not what are your skills formally and how long have you been out of work, but what do you dream of? And we used, I mean, a very early form of this to think about on four scales, where are people with their dream and their actual ability to action that dream? How much is it something that really they've got ideas about? How much is it something that really needs some earlier work and and sort of along this spectrum? And so when people signed up online, we would use this immediately to think about how should we start a conversation with you that doesn't sound condescending because we've got an idea of where you are with your dream right now and what kind of group would fit you. So that was just a brilliant way of, um, we worked with you know behavioural uh, insight teams and in, in a university to begin to develop something that enabled us to then kind of step in at the right mm-hmm. moment. And I think that's really important. But the information for that came out of this ethnographic work, really understanding across an emotional dimension, not just a sort of hard data set of, you know, who's got the skills, where are they living? I know this book has been very popular, not just in the UK, but but all around the world. And when it's translated, and when you go to maybe speak at a book launch in those countries, are you actually getting information elsewhere that you think actually they're somewhere else that's doing it better than us? Because very often the NHS particularly is put up as the kind of exemplar leading the world. But are you looking at models elsewhere that you think are better? I think that's a very interesting question. I mean, partly because, for instance, I've been working a lot in Scandinavia where the book has been translated and where, of course, we think, oh, these are the ideal systems. But they're also very concerned that 
although they manage people very well and much more is wrapped around individuals, again, individuals don't exit the system. Once you've got into the system, you stay in the system and you don't come out. So I think they're facing similar challenges. I'm very interested in middle-income economies, you know, Latin America, for instance, in places where it might be possible to leapfrog. You know, there's a lot of really interesting community work and we might be able to think very differently about how we don't build more hospital beds, but we kind of have that very strong community level and then we have a very modern acute level, which is kind of beyond what we've got here. So I think you can see different pieces. I think the most important thing is that it's shown me that this is really a systemic issue. We, it's really clear that all around the world in different forms, we have industrial, mass industrial welfare systems that were designed for mass industrial problems and that in nowhere in the world there's this kind of re-shifting sort of of gears because we're having such different challenges and these kinds of systems which are you know, vertically organised, hierarchical, just cannot help us with the problems we have today. How do you envisage this playing out? I mean, do you think that in 10 years' time, if we don't make some fundamental changes, that the NHS, as it stands at the moment, just won't be able to cope with the kind of pressures that we're putting on it? I am actually very concerned that if we don't make changes now whilst we can, that we will have huge problems down the line, yes. Very often anyone that you talk to about the NHS will say that it's a fantastic triage, the emergency services are amazing, A&E works really well and yet it's those chronic conditions that so many people face and if it's you know it, within, within their wider family where the problems really lie. That's something that's only going to increase as our population ages and I just wonder how much pressure you think that's going to put on the current system if we don't make big changes. No, I think it's really clear and I think actually that everybody acknowledges who are, you know, all leaders of the system acknowledge that this system doesn't work. The problem is that there aren't enough examples of alternatives, which means that, you know, politicians, for instance, who will privately tell you that they know the system has to change will still be at the barricades kind of defending their hospital when mm-hmm. when that moment comes. I think the reason that I'm optimistic is that I write about the practice in, in radical help that I've been part of, but these examples are everywhere in the country. So the question is, how can we shift funding that at the moment is kind of propping up so expensively these old models, not just health, but obviously health as well? And how can we shift that to begin to grow these new models, which at the moment don't get funded, look messy, they're about intuition, not just rules, we're very frightened of that. How can we begin to kind of shift the financing? A national conversation seems to me what really must happen because until everybody is talking about this, I mean, if we'd spend as much time talking about this as we have talking about Brexit, we might have designed a new system ourselves. Well, that's why I'm so thrilled to be here today. And that's why I have written the book, because I absolutely agree that if we can't tell shared stories of what could be, we can't begin to create it. And we do think, rightly so, that any change will just mean cuts. And and we obviously, you know, we don't want things to be kind of even more threadbare than they are already. To end on a slightly more optimistic note, if we do bring even some of these things to bear, do you actually think that it could lead to us being a happier society? Well, I know it will, because you can go across the country and visit the things that I've started, and you can see dramatic changes in people's lives, that they've been able, for instance, families to kind of exit the welfare system and build good family lives, older people who are kind of thriving once again, Stan, you know, able actually now to kind of leave his flat and join in a music group. Um, And so those stories are there. So I know that this is working. The question is, it's working at the moment for thousands of people. How can we make it work for millions of us? 
for people who are listening to this and thinking that it all sounds very interesting, but they're not quite sure what they can be doing themselves. What are the things that you think that we could easily do that we're not doing now? What practical steps could we be taking that would actually improve our own lives? At one level, Radical Help is a book about relationships. And I think if we don't know each other and we can't imagine each other's realities, which is increasingly the case, we can't make change. So I would encourage everybody listening to think of something they can do in their community, which means that they encounter and do something alongside somebody that otherwise they wouldn't have met. I think that is the most important stage. And as we know from Aristotle onwards, that that kind of collaboration and rolling up our sleeves actually does make us feel happier. So it's not just to help somebody else. It's but to learn about our society again. I think that's what happened in the First World War and the Second World War, and that's what built the welfare state. We began to see other people's realities. We don't want a war, but we need to do that now, and that's the most important thing. I wonder with technology today, do you feel that uh, particularly young people growing up are even more isolated within their own bubbles, perhaps they're just whether in their own bedroom or their own home, and they're less likely to meet people, whether they're people that they would normally meet or wouldn't normally meet, they're just more isolated. It's complicated, isn't it? I mean, definitely we know that social media is having an effect on young people. We can see it in our mental health statistics and more and more data does seem to show a correlation, but I'm no expert, but seems to show a correlation between the two. At the same time, obviously that enables people to connect and find new Mm. ideas that they can then bring into the real world, if you like. And so I think for me, what's important is that we often use technology to begin to build those relationships to make it easy to join our employment service or our ageing service. But after that, it is all about getting face to face and making those real world connections so it's about using that to then build real relationships with one another Hilary thank you very much indeed for joining us and sharing your story it's fascinating really interesting thank you thank you the Rathbones look forward series with Andrea Catherwood